So hi there and uh, welcome to this, which is our seventh free webinar in the 2016 Smart Building Series. And this is titled, uh, What's Better in a Smart Building World? And I'm really happy to have uh, Aaron Lapsley on the call with me from Switch Automation. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing very well. Excellent. So just a um, quick bit of uh, housekeeping to start. Just want to say thank you to uh, Tridium, who are our sponsor for this year. Uh, and obviously, if you want more information on uh, Tridium and their Niagara platform and, and, and their business, then please go to tridium.com. Uh, and also want to say at this stage, if uh, we really want um, interaction with uh, the audience, so if you guys have any questions, please type them in. You should be able to see that on your console. Um, and I will get them here and I will try and feed them into the conversation that, that me and Aaron are going to have. Uh, so without further ado, I think I'll just say, Aaron, if you maybe want to um, give us a little introduction, tell us who you are and a little bit about switch automation, that would be fantastic. Sure, happy to. Uh, let me start with Switch. Switch Automation is a, is a technology company. Hold on, let me get the PowerPoint going here. Okay, there we go. Switch Automation is a technology company uh, based in Sydney, Australia. Our US office is in San Francisco and Denver. Uh, we make a cloud-hosted smart building platform. And so we'll see a little bit, you'll see some screenshots actually from our software to get a little bit better indication of um, uh, the world we play in. But generally speaking, what we're doing is aggregating uh, data from real estate and other real estate property-like fixed assets. So things like uh, billboards or street signs or water wells, typical fixed assets with machines operating in them. And we have a data management layer. Um, basically think of that as, as telling points what they are with tagging. Uh, a built-in user interface. Um, we have a fault detection and diagnostics module. And then we also perform control. Um, sometimes you know, master control, sometimes supervisory control, depending on the application. Um, uh, as far as uh, my background, I, I started my career as a mechanical engineer uh, doing HVAC design in New York uh, in what is probably the biggest expansion of, of uh, real estate in the history of New York, the, the mid-2000s. So it really just started you know, exploding out of the ground. Everything was being rebuilt. Uh, and I, so I got a really good impression of the design side. I went off and got a, a, an MBA and ended up working as a management consultant with Deloitte's uh, teams on enterprise energy management and, and corporate real estate, and then really learned a lot more about the operational side. Oh, okay. So, Four or five years ago, I started uh, w working uh, again back in sort of blending the management consulting and the engineering side and started working more in what is now called smart buildings or, or IoT in buildings. Um, uh, and that um, really has set me on a path that ultimately led to, to joining Switch Automation, uh, who was a company that I ran across taking my clients through the RFP processes for their own smart building programs. Um, so, uh, you know, like a client like Forest City Enterprises in the U.S. that I've been working with for, for a long time as a consultant, but is now actually you know, in the process of pulling their whole portfolio onto our platform. Okay. Great. So, well, that's, that's really great. You have some interesting experience both on the engineering and, as you said, on the real estate um, corporate side as well. So, 
Should we kick this off? I mean, it would be interesting. I know you've got some slides to show us. And uh, what I was, just for everybody out there, what, what me and Aaron were going to do, just um, show this presentation. And, and as I said, I want it to be interactive. So if you've got some questions, please fire away. And I will, I'll try and put them in um, where appropriate. And uh, also, I'll be putting questions to Aaron as well. All right, Jim, just want to confirm my screen is up. Everything's looking good on the slides. Yeah, I can see it. Okay. Right. So with Switch, uh, my role now is I lead our global engineering services team. So this is a team of people that does implementations of our software. We work with our customers uh, to make sure that they're getting the value out of our technology that they expected as they set off on their program. Uh, broadly, what in, in the, you know, the Bay Area here in California would be called customer success. Um, but in, in the property world, it's, it's really um, you know, more of an, a professional services consulting function. So we, we talk a lot with our customers. And when we are out in the world you know, speaking or, or, or working with customers, we tend to hear two things, uh, two kind of dichotomous opinions about smart building technology. And, and uh, you know, my slide here says IoT and buildings. I'm, I'm kind of mixing terms, but you know, in general, what we're talking about is sort of modern, contemporary technology as it, it's applied to building operations and, and physical assets. Um, and you know, on the building side, particularly with you know the older school style, you know, controls or facility management folks, we hear, well, look, we've been doing this for years. This is nothing really that different. On the other side, when you're, you're particularly out here, like in Silicon Valley, we hear a lot of um, what they're doing in buildings is crazy. It doesn't look anything like current technology. We need to rip it all out and start over. And, and indeed, what you see is a lot of IoT startup companies that are attempting to build an end-to-end -end vertically integrated product model. Um, uh, where they have something that, say, measures indoor air quality, and then they want to sell you that piece of hardware all the way through. Um, a software subscription to get that data. So it really is kind of a ground-up model. Yeah, and that kind uh, of um, copies what people have been doing in the IT world as well, right? They're trying to apply indeed, that model indeed. to buildings, yeah. So you know, our position on this is that's really a false dichotomy. Um, the, the truth of it is that um, smart buildings kind of lives at the intersection of both of those things there is an existing infrastructure of technology that is out there that is is really not going to be ripped and replaced particularly any sort of digital direct digital control ddc bms that has been installed in the last 10 years it's very hard for that company to then go make the case that they need to tear that out um, that said there are some um, significant shortcomings of of the legacy uh, building technology world, um, and new technology can make building management better. I mean, I, I've seen it uh, over the course of the last five years as, as I've worked with customers and clients rolling out these programs. Like there is meaningful benefits and real ROI to doing this. Um, as an aside, I'm, I'm actually uh, we get asked about ROI in smart building programs so often that I'm actually writing a pretty in-depth, long-form blog post series on this right now. Um, which is just sort of kicking off. The first post is out. Um, so to start then, let's talk about the technology itself. Uh, and I've presented this slide 
kind of around Australia and the U.S. at this point, and I'm always interested in the reactions I get to it in telling this story. So I'll, I'll remind everyone, I started my career as the guy in the lower left-hand corner here of this slide as a design engineer. Um, and the, the story of how the average sort of medium or large commercial building gets built starts with a design team, an architect and an engineer that are hired by an owner. And typically the, the engineering and, and you know, MEP consultants are sub to the architect. Sometimes they're hired in parallel. It doesn't really matter. Um, and that building is then designed. Most of the real professional horsepower, the people that really have the STEM backgrounds and are, are working on that side of the fence. But that design ultimately gets turned over um, to a general contractor who then bids out all the trades down below. So typically the mechanical is sub to the GC and the controls, at least for most of the energy using parts of a building, you know, the HVAC uh, and mechanical systems are um, often usually sub to the mechanical contractor. And at each step of that bidding process, the margins are squeezed out because the vendors are low bid. So the GC is going to you know, put to five mechanical contractors, they pick the lowest one, then each of those mechanical contractors in turn has then, you know, has multiple bids from automation they're used to working with. Oftentimes these are the regional dealers for, you know, a, a big name brand, you know, one, you know, one of the large four um, traditional companies. And so what you end up with is actually a, a really thinly squeezed margin for the probably what is honestly the most technically sophisticated part of a building, right. which is its automation system. It's the robot brain of the building, and it's, it's actually often really fully squeezed out to where those jobs, particularly in large buildings, are sold at a loss mm -hmm. to, to this company. And they have to recoup their money somehow. I mean, this has been going on for 30 years. So this arrangement is actually quite stable right now in the economy. Um, how do this, does this company then, then recoup its, you know, its investment in the project? Well, the building itself gets built. No one really considering this because this is the normal way of doing things in sort of the developed world. And the building essentially ends up getting built with a hole in it. Now, it's a, it's a hole you can't see, unfortunately, like in this image. You know, when you go through and do a punch list, the architect and the engineer at the end, if there was something like this, they would, they would see that and they would jump all over it. Um, um, even just, you know, a paint irregularity on a wall. There's definitely an architect somewhere that's going to catch that. But because people don't really fully understand and the design teams aren't really incentivized to uh, worry about building operations or technology, uh, the building nonetheless ends up get, getting built with oftentimes what is significant deficiencies. There are some things put in place in the typical project to, to make this better. Uh, commissioning agents help you know, here in the U.S. with, with um, LEED certified buildings and I've been LEED certified since 2000 or LEED accredited since 2007. I've worked on a lot of LEED projects. Uh, they require a commissioning agent which it does help um, but if that they don't specify exactly what that commissioning agent necessarily that's, has um, to do. So that's quite interesting. I, I haven't heard that term before. So is that um, a consultant then that that is separate? What what is the commissioning agent's role? 
Yes, sorry, maybe that's more jargon for, for the uh, left side of the Atlantic. Um, the, uh, <laughs> a commissioning agent is essentially a third party, as you mentioned, they do have to be a third party, that is basically going to verify that the, the design is put in as expected. So it's someone that is supposed to be checking up on the, the initial operations of the building as you turn up the building. So they go out with a clipboard and check to see that the unit actually does kick on, you know, the air conditioning unit does kick on its compressor when the, the temperature goes above its set point, right? They run a battery of tests to determine that the building is running right. And, and that, in theory, is supposed to help. It does help, but a lot of times, particularly in large buildings, they're just spot checking, and they're kind of just running through the motions. So we still see buildings, lead gold, lead platinum, really high-level, supposedly green design buildings that have serious mechanical uh, operating deficiencies. Typically in this arrangement, you know, our owner here is a large property company, and the way that large property companies or, or large corporate real estate organizations are, are typically organized is that the design and construction sides are separate from the, uh, the operating side, because uh, the, the part, those parts of the business look very different. And buildings kind of get handed over to the operators over here in the, in the last stage of, of my slide. And back to my question of how the, the controls companies end up making their money, well, they end up making their money on long-term service contracts. And this is a pretty cozy arrangement with, with these large companies. Um, uh, things you know, do not work right out of the gate, oftentimes. Service trucks are rolled at some point in time, and then money ends up being wasted in the long term. Now, that has nothing to do with the, you know, the KPIs or the, the, the metrics that the design and construction teams care about. All they care about is on time, on budget, which is often why you know, corners are cut as the building is built. At the end of the day, what this results in is that the buildings look great, they, they probably work sufficiently well for occupants to not notice that you know it's hot or cold because that's so obvious. Um, but you know the lights are long, left on all night. The chiller plant is operating suboptimally. The you know the air handling units do not have uh, uh, economizing cycles or, or airside economizers that work properly. There's a lot of margin in there for improvement that the in, the engineers and architects originally intended. Um, uh, but the, this arrangement is what's wasteful. It's not the technology. The automation technology works, and it has for 25 years. It's this story, um, which isn't every building that's ever been built, but we see a lot of them that have fallen you know, prey to this, this uh, life cycle. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, so that um, diagram there, like, I mean, that really does apply to a lot of, I know certainly in Europe and Australia, like that, the, the relationships between the owner and the uh, and the pe people who are putting in the technology, it's it's not always there. There's an abstraction layer between that. So it's this is a fundamentally the characteristics of this this model are it's service provider driven, which is much like all of construction. You need you know human beings out at the building site to set up the building, but in reality, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, more later. Um, these systems really are IT systems, um, and they're being bought. You know, down here, this person's uh, uh, parts and smarts. You know, their 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 products and services are being purchased as a a commodity, and they're not. And th th that is a, a an economic problem. Um, there are consequences to that, and and ultimately, it actually opens up a lot of the ROI for what is it we're now calling smart buildings. So 
uh, as I move into smart buildings, w what do we actually mean by that? I think it's important to actually define the concept. And so this is a definition that our team came up with um, that I want to run through. And we've highlighted some words in here that are uh, important. So it's a, it's a program that's enacted by an organization responsible typically for a property portfolio that is enabled by technology and data to improve the management operations and capital efficiency of, of its physical assets. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about that. It's, it's a very interesting uh, definition. I haven't seen something like that before. Um, I think, yeah, you've done, you've done a good job there. One, one question was about property portfolio. Is that, um, I'm interested why you, you specifically said that um, and I just wondered uh, where, what you think um, the, the, well yeah maybe if you just talk about that yeah almost fundamentally the idea of smart buildings is about more than just one building at a time that's that's almost sort of foundationally or definitionally what makes one of the things that makes doing smart buildings differently so um, it's quite possible to build a smart building, and that's what standards like, uh, like LEED or um, um, uh, you know the the its counterparts in in Australia. So say the Neighbors Standard in Australia, which is about uh, maintaining energy efficiency in buildings. It's looking at each building, comparing it to some kind of benchmark or some sort of reference standard of what makes a building top notch. Yeah, right. That that can definitely be done, but that's sort of traditionally been the approach. Um, and it's really, really focused on, um, oftentimes on construction, again, because we think of buildings like construction. Uh, the reality is that 2 to 3% of the floor area in any given you know, developed market is actually new construction in any given year or major retrofit. Right, so there's very little construction going on compared to the existing building stock. You know, a building is built to last 30, 40, 50 or more years. Right, um, I mean, they would uh, 80% of buildings that will exist in 2050 are already built. Yeah, ex exactly, right? So, so when it comes to the, the um, uh, you know, global, or the, uh, sorry, the carbon footprint of a building or, or just even the total cost of ownership of a building, a, a ton of it, you know, the vast majority of it is in the operating phase of the building. So, you know, keeping tenants happy and making sure costs don't get too high. I mean, it's, pr it's pretty straightforward. So back to why portfolio, um, w typically when you're talking about the, the, the return on investment to smart buildings, going and convincing somebody that they need to, to make one building smart isn't particularly helpful because they're going to go, well, okay, it was built to this standard. We have design engineers that thought about that. You know, we've commissioned that building or, or you know, and, and th that building is fine. Every building looks smart. But in aggregate, there's some organization that that building belongs to. I mean, very few buildings are owned by one, you know, owned one off, one at a time. Um, <clears throat> even small um, commercial real estate companies own at least 10 buildings. And then you're into this idea of a portfolio. And the reason why the portfolio is important is some do worse than others. Um, when you, you know, we've, we've got some interesting slides that show because you know, companies on smart buildings always start with pilots, a pilot program, you know, four or 10 or 15 buildings, which is some subset of their larger portfolio. When you actually roll out the program to scale, it's very different because what you end up finding is um, um, 
you have a lot of buildings. It's like a bell curve. You have a lot of buildings that, that work kind of average. You have some that do particularly well and are doing a lot of things right. And then you have some that, for whatever reason, have fallen behind and are not doing very well. And it might be the story that I just told about construction, or it may be some failure in, in the operations of the organization. But to, to really get the return on investment to justify a technology investment, you know, an enterprise IT style technology investment, you need to be working at the organization and portfolio level. That, that's what it's about. There's a, there's a large fixed cost to technology, um, and so you need to be working at scale. Okay, yeah, understood. Makes more sense, much more sense at the, that level. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that's important here that, that we talk about to differentiate, you know, smart buildings is there's obviously a lot of real estate technologies out there, or property technologies. Yeah, if, you, if you go to Twitter and look at the hashtag PropTech or, or RE Tech, you'll find a lot of companies, but many of them deal with sort of the leasing or transactional side or say the um, uh, work order management side, typically what smart buildings programs are dealing with is the physical assets themselves. Mm -hmm. So the, the data producing things within buildings. So there's the HVAC control system, there's lighting controls, there's indoor environmental quality sensor packages, other things like that. There's um, um, you know, information related to, to doors or occupancy or utility consumption is obviously sort of the first thing people think of, like how do I put in a smart meter or get my meter data from the utility in a format I can consume. But those are all things that are actually related to the management of, of the building and the things in the building itself. It's why the Internet of Things IoT name applies so well uh, to property. Yeah. So um, with that defined, let me move into um, what, talking about the benefits here. And these are the benefits that are specific to the technology. The, obviously, the benefit ultimately these organizations are looking for is, is, is financial. It's bottom line. How do we reduce our costs and, and, and keep our rents high? Um, but in order to do that, we have to talk about what the technology actually provides. Like what, what, what is the story? Why is this actually going to be useful? to us. So we see the uh, benefits of, of what I've defined as smart buildings um, as four things. And I'm going to go through them in turn. Uh, the first is that data becomes useful. So the, the control system that was installed um, uh, as part of the, you know, the project maybe I described earlier um, in, my, in my story of the, the building being built. Uh, produces data. Uh, it's, it is a, a, you know, a digital control system or a lighting control system, uh, maybe a, a smart utility meter that goes out with the, the main switchboard. Those things produce data, but in most cases that data is not useful. There's also other data out in the organization too, so you know, maybe people counting data or things related that, that go to a security organization. That data exists, but a lot of times the people that need it don't have it. Same with utilities. The utilities all produce data about um, uh, you know, the amount of electricity. You know, usually at this point you can get interval data, 15-minute level data from the utilities. But does anyone actually have it? And so to illustrate with some stories, this was a story of a, um, of a company that had actually a, a pretty well commissioned or well set up building management system in this building. But when they pulled into the smart, um, smart building platform, 
they, uh, and then we and then set up fault rules to to actually look and analyze look at and analyze the mechanical equipment started to notice that things were not working as expected in this case it actually turns out it's a large building 1500 uh, ton chiller plant um, you know, there's a hundred or there's 14 100 ton air handlers connected to that that serve about a million square foot or hundred thousand square meter uh, indoor shopping center and uh, the climate that this building was in is out on the, the coast in California where there's a lot of opportunity for free cooling uh, using an, an airside economizer. None of the airside economizers were working properly in those 14 air handling units. And the, this had actually been completely retro commissioned, re, like basically the control system rebuilt from the ground up uh, about four years prior. Well, okay. So. It was it was unfortunate. Now, in this case, the the company actually, uh, based on this data, was able to get the the vendor, uh, actually the national office the, of the o, you know the OEM of the hardware, to pay for for a project to then come back and re retro commission this because they, it wasn't performing to the engineer's design. Um, this data was available. Somebody could have gone in that BMS and seen that these things weren't working, but it wasn't pre presented in a format or organized in such a way that made it useful for them to actually take action on it. Mm -hmm. And so nobody had. Um, another example, um, a company had gone to an alternative workplace program, you know, hoteling, where the uh, people moved, um, it did not have assigned desks, basically. And they were wondering, you know, a few years on, if they were actually utilizing all of their spaces they expected. Well, it turns out once they find they had this data, they had all the. It's a technology company; they're very secure, badging in, badging out. They had very accurate badging data, but it was never in a place that the property people, the corporate property group, could pay attention to it. And so you pull it into to the smart building program, and actually it's now in a place where they've realized they can sublease a significant amount of space in some of their campuses, which they had been trying to determine. So again, the data was there. Now it's actually useful. Second thing, scalability. So scalability can mean a lot of things. Typically when people think of scale um, in a software sense, they think, they think of big, like how do I get big and global, like Uber or something like that. But there's another part to scale that's important too, um, which is there's a whole bunch of the buildings market in particular that's actually never even had digital control or data coming out of the buildings. And that's small, particularly retail buildings. So you can think of the inline tenants in a shopping center um, where there's a, you know, a global portfolio of buildings, but each individual building is small, or uh, a retail bank, or or a convenience store chain. These are smaller buildings, uh, you know, two to five thousand square feet, uh, that just were never economical, actually, for anyone to either for the the building owner or for the the technology vendors to to put digital control and monitoring into. But with a smart building program, you can actually make the technology investment up front, centralize it, you know, cloud with cloud-based software and um, commoditized hardware. Uh, and then for the first time, many of these buildings are actually being um, opened up to the market. So this is just an example of three um, bank branches. Um, this could actually, you know, we could do this for hundreds or thousands, but where they are 
now actually automating centrally the the lighting control in this case. Where else, you know, it's also the HVAC that's being controlled. Okay. Um, so, so this screenshot we're looking at here shows is there three different buildings we're looking at? Yeah. So each row here is a different building. I've anonymized to all of it is, but and then there's there's actually four. Uh, well, in this case, it's showing three um, zones of lighting. So everything is standardized. Uh, because these buildings actually are all quite similar from even though they're in different parts of in this case the US uh, you know coast to coast but they're very similar buildings and they can be automated centrally and that gets the average cost down enough that we're opening up sort of the base of the pyramid like there's this this whole chunk of the market that has never been served it's sort of obvious that you would do control and, and um, and automation and, and, and you know fault detection in huge large you know, class A office buildings but this is real true scale. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the third thing that's different in smart buildings are a, a sort of whole raft of benefits of enterprise IT. So as I talked about, I mean, this technology in and of itself really is enterprise IT. And, and as we work with customers, you know, one of the things that's always interesting is when the IT groups, usually we're bringing together the IT group and the property group, especially in our corporate customers, who, who may have not had much interrelation before. We see that all the time. Like literally they're being introduced on the call, you know, on the first project call. Um, and when the IT people start to uh, learn what's going on with the building systems folks, they start to realize, wow, we really need to be paying more attention to this. Yeah. Because really this is an enterprise IT thing. Yeah, I imagine they get fairly nervous at that point as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so there's, there, there's sort of subcategories of things. Um, that are benefits of enterprise IT. I won't spend a lot of time on all of them, but they're the kind of things you sort of imagine. Um, security, um, data ownership. You know, one of the things you find in, with a typical building management system is they don't have what they call trends set up for a lot of the data points. What a trend is just means we're actually storing the data. You know, I, I, if I'm monitoring the temperature in a room, I don't want to just store like a trailing two weeks. I want all of it. Like why can't like storage is cheap now? It's 2016. Why can't you give me that going back to when you installed it? And that's just not the way the you know the buildings industry's operated traditionally. So owning and actually just literally having storing that data is kind of not something that the buildings world is used to. But the IT world, it's just table stakes. I mean, you 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 have to do it. Um, implementations, this is another one where you can't treat software in particular and training users like it's, like it's a construction project. You have to do a real you know, software implementation like you would putting in SAP or Oracle or something like that. And then finally, future-proofing. Um, just talking about an example that kind of wrapped all these together, a company um, comes on board and, and uh, in the smart building program, one of the things they were doing is they, they needed a sort of big data solution. They, they actually had a lot of utility data and work orders and useful information. They had an energy manager as well, but the energy manager ended up spending an enormous amount of his time actually doing what we call data wrangling. So, you know, basically cleaning all that up, shoving it all into a gigantic spreadsheet, um, you know, meeting all the different people he, you know, he or she needs to, to get that data and once a quarter basically refreshing some sort of mega report. Um, it's a very slow process. It's always out of date the minute that you actually complete it. 
So integrating all those systems uh, together at scale and actually having a real system of record, again, owning that data and doing a proper software implementation, uh, they're able to you know, integrate thousands of facilities in and immediately, uh, in this case, were able to determine uh, that one of the first things they wanted to look at was to determine the performance of a water uh, program, pilot program they'd taken with, a, with another technology vendor. They wanted to know how well it had worked and were able to do that very, very rapidly um, and now can monitor that ongoing on as quickly as they want, you know, every, every two weeks or every month if they want to. Um, and then again, being able to, to actually pull that into a place, all that information into a place where they can access it and use real big data tools to, to see it. Yeah, right. Quick one. Um, you, at the start, you, you mentioned future-proofing as a benefit of enterprise IT. Yeah. How do you see that? Um, uh, explain a little bit more about that. Like, what, what does that entail? Are you basically saying that... Um, if we think about it more as enterprise, then that means we're putting in better, better systems. Yeah, that's right. And really what this ultimately leads to is the hardware, the bits and pieces out in the field that kind of have been the keystone or the thing everyone thinks about when they think of controls. Um, if you go troll LinkedIn, for example, a, a little bit and, you know, start looking at controls companies, there's always images going up of these beautiful control panels they've built, and they look really cool, and that's always kind of been what people think of when they think of, you know, controls or meters or data producing type devices in the field. While that is important, that is actually, that part of it is over time being commoditized. Um, the, the, the devices themselves are all working on open protocols. So, you know, most people have probably heard of BACnet, for example. Everything is basically converging towards a handful of, of open published protocols, which are basically just the languages that these devices communicate with. And as that happens, um, it, it has a strong uh, benefit of future-proofing. So before, when somebody would have sold you a, a commodity, or a, a, a proprietary, rather, system, you were locked in on that. You were on their upgrade path. You needed their service providers. Most of the times you couldn't get into the code. You couldn't really do much of anything without paying somebody. That gets back to that sort of legacy service provider, service-focused model. So you bought parts and then you bought, you bought um, um, services from a company. Well, in the IT world, this isn't really the way that they like to do things. They want things to operate on open standards. So um, putting in place a real IT, enterprise IT program is going to result in standardizing on sort of open protocols and then also where the data goes is important too. You'll even find some of the, the legacy, you know, large mega controls companies, their, their um, enterprise aggregation software tools still are very, very proprietary. You know, I think it, it, underneath the hood, they're probably using things like SQL and more common standards, but for you to actually access that, you, you can't really do it. Another good example is um, APIs. So in the modern sort of enterprise IT world, um, data is passed between IT systems all the time with what are called APIs, application programming interfaces. And basically what that means is it's a, uh, a well-defined data structure for what's in that database with a guide that I can then go in and call on that data. I, I, if I'm given the right credentials, you know, access, I can go in and grab the data myself from that database. 
and that's how these systems all talk together. And this is very, very extremely common in um, enterprise applications, but it's just now starting to become common in building systems. But what that gives you is the ability then to build a platform for the future um, where everything is open and operable. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we could do, as an industry, I think controls could do a much better job of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing that's different in a, a smart buildings world is user experience. And to me, as a person that, that, that uses and, and helps to develop this technology, this is the one that is really the most stark. Probably the most, the biggest shortfall of the traditional building technology or BMS world is the user experience. We had an example that I was looking at yesterday where we're in a RFP for a, a company and it's the, the, the sort of campus facility that we're looking at is enormous. It's incredibly well known. It's an iconic facility. It's new. It's beautiful. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful buildings you will ever see. It's probably one of the most expensive assets that will ever be produced on the planet Earth, honestly. And then we had some screenshots of their BMS, and it was just really, really lacking. Um, when, you see, when you see it, you're like, wow, you built that, and then that's what you got as a BMS. And so it's always just been kind of, well, those are just like the boiler room guys. They don't, they don't need anything to be pretty. And the reality is actually there's a lot of people that are using and consuming this information. Uh, and we need to do everything we can to make it uh, as user um, uh, accessible as possible because everyone has heard that story of the BMS just being the dusty computer down in the basement that nobody's paying attention to and it's blinking with red lights saying hey all this stuff is broken everyone's been ignoring it um, so um, this one really makes a, a, a big difference and it's something that we as a company strive for every single day so just as a couple of um, uh, examples uh, this is um, Information um, is actually from our office, this screenshot, but it's, it's um, pulled into a charting tool that in this case allows us to really rapidly um, build and with just really minimal training, um, adjust the, the options to what we like, hide them away so that nobody ever has to see them if they don't want to, but I can set up this chart all within the user interface. There's no coding or, or getting under the hood. It's all built in, in the actual web application itself and doing things to compare really important variables in this case. You know, so if we, if we imagined that this was like uh, uh, one of your customers was looking at this, um, who, who would they, who, what would they be? What, what would their job type be or their function within the organization? Yeah, I, I typically try to think of, at, at the highest level, there's really three user groups that we end up working with. Now, it, we can segment it down and get really, really specific, but typically speaking, there's an executive or management level group that is looking at the software. They tend to care more about aggregate portfolio things or, like, say, a region. Mm -hmm. um, and they want to look at cost, and they want quick access to good information. So you got to build them things like, you know, it would be called, like, dashboards. Things where they're not going to spend a lot of time in the software, but the information is very important to them. They need to receive reports and see summaries and maybe be able to do a very limited amount of drilling in. Yeah. Then you've got your more facility type users, which may be anything from, say, a, a, you know, a, a consultant for that building. So like a design engineer looking at doing a retrofit, but they're looking at one building 
Um, that could be a facility manager, it, it could be a building engineer, a maintenance tech. They tend to need to look at very specific things that are a lot more detailed. So that the person looking at this information would probably be of that type. Right. It's somebody that needs to monitor, in this case, the, the CO2 in the room, and they want to know when it goes over 700 parts per million because that's a problem with the ventilation, and they've been monitoring that issue. Once that issue is fixed, maybe they delete this chart and don't worry about it anymore, right? Yeah. And, and the third user group we think of um, a lot of times is more what I would call like super users. It's what a lot of the, the folks on my team would do if we were doing managed service for a customer. Maybe it's an energy manager a lot of times at our customers, someone who is a bit more technically sophisticated, used to working with data, um, comfortable making you know a, a change to a logic rule or something, looking for mechanical fault, um, uh, and they tend to be you know super users of the, uh, of the platform. They they need to be able to do lots of different things and and across the board. Um, and then finally, just one one last example of user experience. This was uh, a, a really great example of interaction, one of the things that as we all start to work a bit more remotely and take more more um, responsibility for things that are not sitting right next to us, um, and as we do that we need to be able to collaborate. So an example where a, a change was made to a sequence of, uh, of operations, they actually reprogrammed the, the local building management system but wanted to measure and verify the results there. That actually happened here. So I logged in one day and it was actually the energy manager for a customer that, that sent me a note and basically said that we adjusted you know, and economized our sequence for the plant. Guess which day we put it in. <laughs> so I did and I could see that it was right here where they made the change. They actually dropped the demand for um, the plant by a, a pretty significant amount, like about 30%. Um, and even you can see the load is this Oops, sorry, the load on this plant is this spline curve here, the line. It didn't change, but the plant power actually dropped. And as it got warmer through the course of the spring here in the northern hemisphere, they, they, con they continued to um, operate the plant very efficiently. But that aside, that's kind of normal uh, smart buildings world, optimization world. Um, the ability to actually collaborate and us to have that conversation through the, the software uh, is a big, big change in user experience because this is a person that's sitting in Texas. Yeah, me and my team are sitting in San Francisco or, or Denver. This building is actually in Canada in this case. Um, and um, all of that was taking place virtually, basically. That is the type of user experience that you couldn't have had 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And so the ultimate goal, just to wrap up on the, on the slides, is that w what we want to see at the end of the day that's going to drive ROI for these programs is more people with, the, with more skills, better skills, um, and, and more real information uh, paying attention to more buildings and making them work better. That's the goal. And, and wh whatever work better means for you, maybe it means uh, you know, the tenants are happier, maybe it means the, the systems are more efficient, all of the above. Maybe it means we're generating less work orders. Whatever it is that, that is your metric, we need to get more people interacting with the technology to make that happen. Right, and I was going to pick up on that. But first I want to say, you know, anyone out there, I think now if you have some questions for, for Aaron or indeed myself, now's a good time. Uh, please type them in. Uh, but yeah, picking up on that bit there at the end, Aaron, where you're saying about yep. working 
better. Um, are we are we ignoring the people that actually use buildings here, like the users? And okay, you know they're not. Um, I mean, how much how, how much control can we give them of the environment? And yeah. we see examples. I know they, people talk about you know when when um, set points were put in there, and you know people messing around with thermostats, and you know someone who isn't trained, let's say, for want of a better word, that can't make good decisions. But are we? Is that really our fault because we've not designed the technology correctly? Yeah, th this is a really interesting topic of conversation. This one comes up a lot in the Bay Area um, as we talk with sort of the, the broader building technology industry. You know, traditionally, you, you sat in one of two types of buildings. You sat in one where you could either go mess with the thermostat or somebody had put a lockbox on the thermostat and you, you couldn't get to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and the reason why was probably just because, you, you know, Either it's a building where you could call in and complain if you were cold or hot, or or you would just go over and deal with it yourself. And you know, the building manager, or facility manager, has either gotten annoyed with that or hasn't. Um, now there's a lot more options. So particularly with lead in the U.S., you know, back even going back into the mid 2000s, there was a credit you could get for giving occupants control of their environment. The most common way to do that was actually as far as you can get from digital technology. They they'd put in a a raised floor air conditioning system where the, 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 you know, the air from the air con just kind of seeps out of the ground, the, the floor, and everyone had a little little metal puck diffuser by their desk that was right. spaced out sort of every two meters, you know, where they could, you could adjust the, how much air that let out. Yeah. So it was very, very manual. That would get you that credit, but I actually don't think those, that's, those setups ended up being particularly loved by the occupants. Um, nowadays, I think this is going to become increasingly important. And, and while I have an opinion on this personally as an engineer, I, I cannot say that I am right on that. There are companies out there like, like Building Robotics or, you know, with the Comfy product, sure, yeah. product that are providing people the ability with, with an app or a, a web app to actually you know, collectively all vote essentially on what they want the temperature to be. And then there's going to be some sort of algorithm um, uh, that then adjusts the set point essentially for that room. Um, you know, you know that is um, an interesting way to do things. I think the design engineering community would say that does not make a lot of sense, at least not without predefined limits. If you look at the typical standards that buildings are built on, you know, there's a group in the U.S. It's pretty global now called ASHRAE that actually does all of the academic research related to HVAC and, and, and occupant comfort, uh, comfort, they have a standard called, called Standard 55 that basically defines the allowable conditions for occupant comfort. And in many cases, that's adopted as building code. Um, parts of it are in the International Energy Conservation Code, you know, limits to set points and things like that. And, and what it would say, um, and it tends to be my opinion too, is that there is an acceptable range of set points, depending on the season in particular, um, that should basically leave you with what's called a dead band. So basically, if the if the air is between you know your low threshold and your high threshold, then you really shouldn't be doing any comfort cooling or heating. Um, there's sort of an inherent trade-off with energy use, you know, in that. Um, 
I tend to think that a really well-designed and well-functioning building is going to do what, what ASHRAE has found, and it's going to satisfy basically 80% of occupants 80% of the time under you know, normal operating conditions. Um, yeah, so, so not everyone's going to be satisfied, but you get to a level where you know, most people are. And, and indeed, yeah, yeah. in some of these sort of scenarios that you gave where they can provide feedback, um, it probably makes more sense, like you said, to, to vote. So that there is, there becomes a, a quorum, like um, enough people vote up, then, then they raise the temperature. Yeah, and if you're in a space that is, you know, has, has sufficient variation in, the, in the, the number and type of occupants, then that system may make a lot of sense. Um, if you're in a space, you know, say a, an, an office building that always has you know, about the same 100 people on the floor because they're assigned desks, then you're probably going to want to shoot for an average and, and optimize on energy uh, efficiency. Hmm. Um, th there's limits to what you can do even with people voting. You're never going to make the space hotter than a certain amount or, or cooler than a certain amount, even if one person is sitting there banging on the vote button. Yeah, it just would, would it doesn't make sense. No, it'd be ridiculous, right? Yeah, but do you also think that it's some kind of an an institutionalized thing? Because my, my sense of the you know building industry is that um, we don't think of users as being the people that actually inhabit the building, or the they we don't think of them as customers. I mean, we think of the people that own the building as the customers, but they're not the one experiencing that environment. The ultimate customer yeah. is the person in the building. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and uh, you know, let's say if you take Switch, our customers are usually the people that own and operate the buildings. And depending on who those customers are, they may care more. They may prioritize, I should say, more or less, the tenant comfort um, as part of what you know they care about. So we were out with a company, large commercial real estate company, um, in a in demo the other day and that company cares an enormous amount about tenant comfort. I mean, it's written all over the place. Like it's part of their everything, you know, that they, they care about up and down the spectrum. There are other companies, but maybe it's a different, you know, building type. You're working with something where where occupants are more transient. Hmm. Um, say the common area of a large shopping mall or something like that. Well, they, they care about the occupant comfort for sure, but they're in a completely different use case. I mean, they may have 10 people in the building or, or, or 1,000, and they're really just trying to maintain sort of a general um, comfortable situation. Um, so, you know, the, the, they're prioritizing other things, energy efficiency to deliver um, within sort of a certain range. Um, I, it's ultimately the building owner's job um, to determine you know what they care about, what they're going to provide. A lot of times, Jim, it's written into the leases for spaces too, particularly if it's a commercial real estate company, um, or it, say even if it is a corporate company like a bank. You know, well maybe they care about a lot more things than than the temperature. I mean, they care about having a welcoming environment, and making sure that there's somebody to greet people at the door. So, lots of companies you know tackle that. Um, that um, real estate programmatic yeah. um, Absolutely. goals yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, our goal as a technology company is to help our customers deliver on what they care about, and our customers are, are the owner, uh, owner operators. I think increasingly you are seeing um, that, that 
that operators of real estate are starting to care about occupant comfort more, and they're starting to include more things than temperature in that. You know, there's a lot of um, research done on on indoor environmental quality. You know, there's a whole the whole well standard just came out is becoming rapidly popular, and it's about a lot more you know short term immediate things and even longer term just sort of general work environment metrics. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It's specific to the building, isn't it? And that ultimately, whatever that function of the building is, has to uh, has to drive what what um, what benefits you want to derive from from it. Or One of the things you're seeing in this is, is like the design engineers, and this is you know going back to what I learned as a young engineer. Um, they are told to design to standards. They have to. Usually those standards are written into the building codes. You don't have a lot of choice. You need to provide this amount of outside air at a minimum in order to maintain this ventilation index for this space with this amount of assumed occupants. Hmm. Um, you need the temperature set points. You need the temperature inside to meet within this set point range uh, in the summer and this set point range in the winter in order to maintain um, uh, you know this other part of the code, um, and there's always a competing interest between energy efficiency and um, uh, you know the, the the occupant comfort in those cases. In reality, now what we're starting to see a lot more of is the ability to tune this and drive it through the use of data. The codes are all about construction; they're very seldom checked up on related to the operations of the building. And with real data, you can see if that, say, 20 per, I did my calculation and it says I need 25% outside air. Well, does that actually maintain a reasonable amount of CO2 in that space, in that conference room, whenever 15 people pile into it for you know, a two-hour working session? Maybe not. You know, maybe we need to rethink those limits a little bit based on data. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which was your first point. Data, yeah. make the data useful. Yeah. I, one final question from me. I wanted to uh, go back to sort of what you were saying about user experience. Uh, my sense, and obviously somewhat you, you guys have spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, to what extent is it being driven by consumer applications? Because... You know, I, I also have a friend who works in um, developing web applications, and it seems that it's getting increasingly difficult because the standard that people expect now from a user interface is so much higher. And I guess that's being driven by the fact that we're all experiencing technology now on a daily basis, and and the bar is really high now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's different typically for enterprise applications than it is for consumer. You're absolutely right with consumer. We're all sort of being slowly programmed that everything should be, you know, every button should be nice and shiny and everything should be incredibly easy to use and specific to my use case. Um, and I think in general that is driving all technology companies. There's that sort of methodology for user testing and figuring out how things work. That's definitely driving us and it's driving pretty much any shop out there that's developing product, you know, software product. Yeah. Um, I think enterprise applications in general have lagged behind that. Uh, you know, if you look at tra the traditional user interfaces for something like, you know, SAP or one of the enormous enterprise applications, they, they were more built so that they could be configured and customized and implemented um, than they were to be, you know, sort of 
beautiful and glossy for, for the users or, or you know the navigation to be perfect you know. um, but in general uh, everything is moving in that direction and we definitely think about that um, what we end up seeing a lot of times particularly with our super users so if I go into a, you know, a large corporate customer or, or, or commercial real estate customer and they have energy management type users they've been those energy managers have been having to scrap and claw and cobble together and wrangle so much data that when they see what the software is able to do and provide for them very quickly it, it really is sort of game-changing for them even though I know and we know as a company that our user experience could definitely be improved I mean we're we're constantly moving towards that so mm -hmm. in some ways some users are have been in such a desert that um, any sign of water is you know, incredibly welcome. Um, but that said, we're constantly having debates about how getting you know, less technologically sophisticated users, people who are not used to using software as much, um, we're, we're all constantly talking about how to get them more engaged. How do we get them what they need? If I'm the average like maintenance tech at a building and I'm used to using my iPhone, how can we make this software not look like an enterprise application which feels complicated to them and give that person exactly what he or she needs. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And it, it's a constant challenge. It, it is a constant challenge. Yeah. Well, we're just coming to the end of the webinar now. Um, so now would be a good time if anyone has any final questions for us. Um, but while any, if anyone wants to think about that, I'll just say a final thank you to our sponsor, Tridium. Um, also, we have just published, or well, a couple of weeks ago, a report on building performance software. And actually, it does cover some of the things that we talked about here. Um, you know, and, and I think we discussed earlier about um, RE tech and, and how that's influencing um, uh, the industry as well. And, and we look at we identified some kind of 16 different types of software applications or software platforms that are being used in some sense to manage uh, or improve the performance of a building. Um, so, you know, it actually makes integration quite hard, but we are, and I, I guess, Aaron, I don't know what your sense is, but it seems like we are moving towards more integration slowly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely see that. Uh, we recently did a project where we were pulling data sources from, I think, seven different subsystems within a, a, a large company's building. Um, some of them were other. You know, we we integrated the Solar City API as part of that. You know, so it's like a, another company's data center just for the solar data. Um, so it, we're definitely moving towards open, operable, integrated. Um, enterprise IT world for buildings. Yeah, about time. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to say we this has been recorded and I'm going to put this up on our website tomorrow, but also it will be hosted on SoundCloud so um, you can go there and, and listen again to this. And I will put up slides um, on the website as well so you can, you can see what we've been talking about. And so I guess lastly, just uh, say thank you, Aaron, for... Uh, Really interesting, uh, interesting talk. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate it, and um, um, happy to be involved in, in any way we can moving forward. If anybody's yeah. interested in, in reaching out, then um, look me up on LinkedIn. Great, sure they will. 
Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, goodbye to everybody. Thanks, bye.